Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. This week, we're continuing our candidate conversation series for Utah's Republican gubernatorial convention coming up on April 25th. We're extending invitations to all the candidates for governor and their running mates for lieutenant governor to be on our podcast to discuss their policy positions and why they think they'll be the best choice to lead the state's government. Joining us on this episode is Republican former House Speaker, uh, Speaker of the House of, uh, of the Utah House of Representatives, Greg Hughes. Thanks, Greg, for joining us today. Hey, Jason. Hello, Amy. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to start with um, who are you? And uh, we know you're not a native Utah, but like, give us a little rundown on who yeah. you are, your background, your family life. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I I don't think my upbringing is different than a lot of people in America or in Utah. But I, as far as gubernatorial candidates, I think it might be a little different. I, I was raised by a single mom. I'm, my mother was an art student in Pittsburgh in the late 60s. I was born in 1969. And uh, my mother, lots of love. I mean, my mother was just drowned me in love, but paying bills and, uh, and just as an art student uh, can be, uh, you know, she didn't have, uh, you know, she didn't like those nine to five jobs. She wanted commission jobs. So she, so she could make zillions of dollars, but sometimes those commission jobs mean that you make nothing. And so I know what it's like to have the power turned off or to uh, be evicted uh, go to different schools in the same school year, uh, change schools quite often. And I don't think, uh, I don't think that's been, that's been harmful to me. I think that it's taught me, uh, how to confront adversity, but it's also made me a stronger person. And I think my perspective when I was a public servant in the state house, I think empathy is a powerful tool, uh, as a leader. And I think that the way I grew up, uh, uh, allowed me, it allows me to, uh, see things from maybe some different perspectives, uh, in people's lives. So that's uh, that's who I am. I you know I'm my pine. I like we'll to talk about brag. your wife and your kids because I've met yeah, your daughter. So I like to, she's she's so great. I like to brag that I'm the pioneer in my family. Everybody might have pioneer blood, but you're you're talking to a pioneer. Here. So <laughs> I didn't have a handcart. I came over in a Suzuki Samurai across the plains, and uh, I got I got to Provo, Utah. I'm, my wife is from grew up in American Fork. She's a Utah. Uh, we got married. Uh, we've been married for 25 years. We have three children. Uh, my oldest is Sophie. She's in her third year at Utah Valley University, and she's taken this semester off to help her dad on this uh, gubernatorial campaign, which has been a blast. It's been a, it's been fun to have uh, Sophie with me. And then I have two sons. Uh, one, Holden. That's Holden is a, a senior in high school, and then a, my youngest is Reagan, a good Republican name. He is a sophomore in uh, in high school, and I'm a small business owner. I uh, I have apartments, uh, small infill apartments, seven units, 14 units with a business partner. It's a, a business that I've uh, had since we started in 1994, uh, and uh, we still run that business today. Although my business partner would like to review the definition of partnership, and uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know I feel so. That's another area of empathy. I feel 
what happens in our economy and with the state budget and things like that from the perspective of a small business owner that needs to make payroll and, and cover overhead and everything else. So, you know, that's uh, in politics. I got started. I got lucky right in my senior year in high school. I was a bellhop at the Sheraton uh, in Pittsburgh. And I had a friend whose mother was working for the Bush Quail 1988 uh, state, Pennsylvania state campaign. It was a targeted state. And I was curious. So I started volunteering and I ultimately went on full time in that presidential campaign. And I just for a young you know, kid out of high school, I just was lucky and fortunate to be around a lot of important decisions and a lot of important efforts. And I think I got a taste for uh, enjoying or wanting to be part of something that was bigger than myself. I used to sit, they didn't have computers, Jason and, and Amy, back when I was doing this in 88. So it was filing cabinets and they had white papers on every alphabetically listed, every issue, white paper for then Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush. And I would at night when people left, I would go through those those white papers and I learned that there were issues I didn't know about and what the campaign's uh, position was and I would compare it to what my experiences were and it just it was just this very very unique uh, experience in my life that I think has informed uh, who I am and down to what I'm doing right now uh, it, it's had that big of an impact so I've enjoyed public policy and public service because I think it's the doing things that are bigger than yourself that I think is um, an honor and a, and a privilege to be able to do. How'd you get to the point where, I mean, you've been in uh, local politics for quite some time, but how did you get to the point where you, you decided you wanted to run for governor? You know, it's uh, what I wanted to do to say, it's a good, great question. I was really careful when I was, uh, so I served 16 years in the state house uh, at, with two year terms, that's eight terms. And I served four years as majority whip. And then the last four years before I decided to, to not seek reelection, I served four years as speaker of the house. And I was really careful, Jason. I did not want to think about other races, other opportunities. Uh, I didn't, I called it measuring drapes. I wasn't going to measure drapes anywhere because when I've watched people that if they have their eye on the next prize or the next race, it could color their decision-making and what they would do. And I wanted to be very careful that I stay in the moment, serve and not allow a future race to ever impact how I would make decisions. And I can give you examples of issues I, tackled that if you wanted to run for office again, you'd just be making a bunch of enemies, taking on hard issues. But we didn't. I So I I did. I never had it in my mind that I was going to be a candidate for governor when, as I was finishing up my time as speaker. But when I was finished, um, and now that I'm a recovering legislator, uh, you learn a lot. I, I learned a lot in that time, those 16 years of public service. I think there are, are great challenges staring at this state, state of Utah, growth, quality of life issues, cost of living. Uh, and I felt like I could contribute. I could contribute to the dialogue. I could contribute to the race. I could insist that this race, it's the first open seat for governor since 1992. I could insist and, and ensure that these, these, the topics are not just 30,000 feet above the ground and vague. I'm, I'm bringing specificity to this race. And ultimately I saw a course where I could, I could win. And if governor, I felt that with the experience I've had, uh, if, if I don't even see the other candidates, which are a lot of good candidates, I don't see them as my opponent. I see it as an open seat that I've got to make my best case to the people of Utah. And if I earn their support, then I will continue to serve as I had before, uh, working hard for the state, trying to tap into all the advantages we have as a state. I'd argue more than 49 other states, but mm -hmm. I, I guess I, that's why I got in. I got in because I know the challenges, I know the opportunities, and I worry sometimes that it it's hard. You'll get attacked a lot of times when you're trying to move the needle. 
uh, because people hate when you mess with the status quo. Uh, and I worried if people could spot the challenges, let alone uh, endure some of those uh, tough times it takes to get some hard things accomplished. Well, I know we're, uh, we're coming up on the uh, end of this segment, so I'm, I don't want to start with a new thing. But I know uh, we would like to talk to you about some of your policy issues, particularly uh, we're, we're in this uh, crazy economic time and crazy health time with, with COVID going on. And I would love to hear some of your perspective on what do you think uh, needs to take place for us to kind of get out of this and, and move forward uh, in the days ahead. We're having a candidate conversation with former Utah House Speaker Greg Hughes, who is running for governor. And you're listening to Voices of Reason. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. We're continuing our candidate conversation series for Utah's gubernatorial convention coming up later this month. Joining us today, Republican former Speaker of the Utah House of Representatives, Greg Hughes, who's running for governor. And uh, Speaker, I wanted to ask you, you know, we're, we're right now, we're kind of in the midst of this health crisis that is uh, coronavirus. And, and right now, b- beside that is we, we're having record unemployment in our state after having record low unemployment before. Um, what are we, what's going to have to take place for us to get out of this and move forward and get back to being the stable, strong economy that we had before this all started? I, I, this question is, I don't know that you can have a race for governor knowing that we're getting, that Utah is going to have a new governor, uh, elected in 2021 and this not be the most critical issue that we're going to discuss in real time. And it's an issue no one, uh, ever foresaw coming, but yet it is, I think it's all encompassing. Why? Because we are seeing uh, a 30% reduction in the in the country's gross domestic product, its GDP. Those are depression, Great Depression percentages. Uh, we're not seeing it from economic forces. We're seeing it from the government really self-quarantining and 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 creating policies of social distancing. And uh, so it's been a, a shutdown. And I think the challenges we face. I I, I believe in a in a smart public safety or public health strategy. Uh, the, the, the challenge is, and I think the longer we're in this, the more evident this challenge is going to become, is that there's nothing about our, our economy, our free market society uh, that is ever contemplated, planned for, or can really uh, endure through a complete economic shutdown or one to the extent we've seen. There's no business pro forma that says if you, have, if you don't have any business happening, you can cover your payroll and you can, and you can cover overhead. Uh, if you don't have a job, how do you pay rent? How do, if you, how do you keep the lights on? 
I know the federal government is trying to inject capital into the into businesses and households as we are in, on this nationwide pause. But I but I'm telling you, I feel that we've started this pause without clearly understanding how uh, that would practically work. And I think without those answers, uh, we get into a dangerous time where people will not adhere to the public safety strategy that we public health strategy we have because they can't afford to or they don't see how they're going to make ends meet or they don't want to lose their business or people uh, can't live without a paycheck missing them you know at a time so my this is what i this is what i would say we have to have an exit strategy and it has to be defined and i think that we're seeing enough and learning enough and i think we have flattened the curve with the self-quarantining we've gone through right now i've seen numbers that have shrunk significantly and i think it's because of what we're doing but you don't, the analogy I like is someone said, you know, you don't treat uh, someone with cancer with chemotherapy until the patient dies. Okay, there's a, there is a time where you have to, where you're killing cells, you've done that, and now it's time to have the surgery, remove the cancer. I think we're in that spot. I think that if you have, now that we've been self-quarantined and you don't have symptoms, then you are, uh, you don't have the virus. I think we should have tests to know that we don't have it and our temperature taken as we emerge back in the workforce. Those that have had it, there's antibody, antibody tests you can take that show that you, you have a resistance to it and the antibodies and that you're through it, and they are what they call medically resolved. Uh, you continue to quarantine uh, the medically frail and those that are elderly or those that are f experiencing symptoms. Uh, even for our, our current workforce as we get back to work, taking having you take your temperature uh, daily or multiple times a day to make sure if any of these symptoms uh, begin to uh, take place that you're aware of it and you can quarantine immediately. And then here's the one that I love from a doctor in a hospital in New York. It went viral. It's really hard to do, but it's easy to think about. He just says, folks, quit touching your face. We're getting 99% of the people are getting this because whatever they touch, know that coronavirus is in your community. If you touch a doorknob or if you touch something that somebody that has the virus has touched, uh, you know, purell your hands when you touch things that are commonly touched by other people. As soon as you get to a business or a home and you have soap and water, wash your hands uh, thoroughly and then quit touching your eyes, your nose and your mouth. If you can, by idiosyncrasy, if you could get yourself to quit touching your face, which I will admit is easier said than done. I have no idea how often I do this. You're 99% sure not to get it if you quit touching your face. So, so Greg, don't you think it's something, it's sort of like uh, quitting sugar or something. Like the minute you go on a diet, you get hungry. Right, right. The minute you tell yourself, I can't touch my face, you, you feel an itch. It's exactly, I was just going to say, Eddie, when he said this, my nose was itching <laughs> as I was listening to him say, quit touching your face. I'm looking around for a Kleenex to touch my nose because he said, quit touching your face. I 100% I get it. Yeah. I think right now there there is, I don't believe anybody that's telling me that we can keep this economy completely shut down. Mm -hmm. It is open-ended. We don't know when we're going to get back to work. It is not a viable plan. And if it's not a viable plan to do this indefinitely, I think people ultimately aren't going to adhere to it mm -hmm. any longer. They're going to go back to work. If we don't have the plan on how we get back to work and be careful on how that that actually happens and we don't put these precautions in place mm -hmm. um, and distancing a part of it, all the things I mentioned. And I think people are going back to work anyway at some point because even with this federal funds, this federal relief you see, it's a it's a Rubik's cube to get a federal uh, a bill passed in Congress to actually land into the banks accounts of businesses to be able to make payroll. 
Well, it's I'm, not happening yeah. right away. I'm convinced. It's, it's hard. I'm convinced people will get their checks when we, when it's over and we can go back to work. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I, I have that exact same concern, and mm-hmm. that's why I'm saying, if we want to get a back to work plan uh, going, we have to be talking about it right now. The longer you, it, you wait to even begin the okay. discussion and the planning, the harder it's going to be. So I have a couple of points on that. I I don't disagree, but I think. One of the things that concerns me is talk about, we have about three minutes, um, two or three minutes, uh, is that talk of going back to work or get kind of going back to normal. Um, uh, you know, I think we, coronavirus has revealed some fractures in our healthcare system. Um, and that has also revealed some fractures in the fact that a lot of people that we consider important to the economy don't have sick time. Um, uh, or paid time off. So how do you solve those problems? Because I think like, I think testing is critical in going back. So we have to have the ability to test people to say whether or not they're sick yes, and what they're sick with. But I also think this idea that um, like, how are we going to handle it when um, your coffee uh, uh, barista um, gets sick and they don't normally have sick time? How do you solve those problems at a state level, Greg? Well, I, look, I, I'll, I'll say this. I think what we're learning right now is there's this uh, government definition of an essential job versus a non-essential <laughs> job. And I honestly think if you're feeding a family with your job, mm-hmm. I think it's essential. And I think that we yeah. have to kind of change that paradigm. And because of that, what you've just mentioned, how in a time, because I don't think we go back to hugging it out and, and shaking hands everywhere we go. I think we're going to learn some, di- we're going to be a different society from what we're experiencing right now. And so sick leave and how people are going to practically be able to leave the workforce for some amount of time will will be in, will be mandatory it'll be incumbent because now it's not a luxury it's not a nice to have it's really as i see it the only way we keep the economy running is to make those accommodations ahead of time so that if anyone starts feeling symptoms they're not afraid to admit it uh, they will they will withdraw themselves so they don't spread it those are those are strategies that are going to be uh, i think applied right away so i i think that it's I think those, the things you're bringing up are exactly what you have to do in a planned back-to-work uh, st- uh, strategy. But uh, look, I also hope we find a vaccine here soon. I mean, they're saying a year out. That means we'll hit a second wave of this in the fall months. The summer will burn this off. And then the, when the weather gets cold again, it, like flu season, we'll see it come back. Boy, would I love a vaccine before that happens again. But I think we right now, to get back to work, we have to absolutely change our habits uh, in ways that you know, we, we're not used to. We'll continue our candidate conversation with former Utah House Speaker Greg Hughes, who's running for governor. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Welcome back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. We're having a candidate conversation with Republican former House Speaker of the uh, Speaker of the House of the Utah House of Representatives, Greg Hughes. And uh, you know, you had spoke a bit about uh, in the previous segment about our economy, but I uh, understand you 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 kind of look forward. You know, as we climb out of this, how do we do this in a way that gets us back to being a high growth state? Right. And I'll tell you this, the, um, so how, I, I think that the, the first day on the job for Utah's next governor, I, and I don't mean that I'm not trying to sound draconian, but I think we have to understand the times that we're in right now. Uh, when you, when, when a state estimates a budget and plans for a budget, uh, they are looking 18 months ahead of time. Well, there was no, no one contemplated what we're going through right now. And so you're going to see 
some of the largest shortfalls in revenue for states and counties and cities that we've ever seen. And I think the next governor, uh, the, the suite of choices and decisions that the next governor is going to be asked to make or expected to make uh, are going to be from like a category of bad, worse and catastrophic. It's going to be it's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be people out there that will want you know to be held harmless. That's a term you hear in government and, and budgeting. We want to be held harmless. I think harm is occurring uh, when you have a pandemic of, in, of a you know in historic uh, fashion like we're living through right now. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be it's going to be a, our next governor that's going to really have to grapple on putting these budgets together in a way that is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. It's going to require everyone to you know, leverage dollars more than they've ever done before. We've got to be careful, too, with federal funds. Uh, I've never seen federal funds that a state has requested that has given more power to states to build their budgets and become more uh, autonomous as a state, making decisions on a local level. When you when you accept federal funds, those have strings attached that really guide how the state will uh, spend its state budget uh, just because by virtue of you're taking their funds, they're going to tell you or they're going to give you some direction on how that how you spend your money. The more of that you accept, the more of that local control uh, and perspective of how you build your state budget, uh, you leave it to the to the federal government. So there will be this gravitational pull to want to see more uh, federal funds in the budget. We have to resist that to a great extent. The other thing we'll have to do, and this is how we climb out of it. We were the, one of the first states to climb out of the Great Recession. Um, we'll climb out of this Great Depression or whatever we want to call this uh, very quickly if, uh, and because we have the workforce, we have the, this this whole state was born, its history, its heritage was born on tough times. And so we're tough people. Uh, we have to see economic growth growing the pie, but it cannot be uh, in four counties out of 29 counties, those four counties being the Wasatch Front. It's a valley. It's a 130-mile stretch. You can't sprawl like Dallas-Fort Worth. There are there are counties outside of the Wasatch Front, Utah County, Salt Lake County, Davis County, Weber County, that really can honestly say at least 22 of those counties that could say we've never seen a day of growth. We've never seen a day of economic opportunity. The way this state grows, the way we bring water and road and rail infrastructure, uh, it's already there. But how do you buttress it and how do you strengthen it and how do you get economic opportunity happening throughout the state. Well, it's through infrastructure. It's That's one of the roles of government. So as we see us as a state growing by way of population, which by the way, if you have one of the highest birth rates in the nation, unless you want to be China and limit uh, kids to one kid a household, we're going to grow from in, internally. So you can't say you hate growth because I think we're doing it anyway. It's it's like I said, it's a, it's a high birth rate issue more so. And we do have people coming in the, the state, but we have a high birth rate. So knowing that we're growing, knowing that every young person Uh, that lives outside the Wasatch Front feels almost obligated or by necessity has to leave their communities to come to the Wasatch Front to find a job. That is not a sustainable model. Mm -hmm. Uh, As governor, we are going to invest, make a massive and even historic investment of infrastructure throughout the whole state so that economic activity and opportunity occurs throughout the state so that my young kids don't say to me, dad, it costs too much to live here and I can't find a job. Uh, I want my children, if they can't find uh, their way or an opportunity in the Wasatch Front, I would love for them to stay in the state, not move away out of state and find a, a high quality of life and a lower cost of living somewhere else in this state. So that's that That growing the economic pie is a big deal yeah. uh, to me. And I think it's one of the things that if we do it right, uh, it's a chapter in our kids' Utah history book and future generations because we have it's our moonshot. It's something we're going to do 
similar to how the Inter Intercontinental Railroad changed the face of the economy uh, in, uh, you know, after it was completed, we can have an infrastructure investment and do some smart things that will bring economic uh, opportunity throughout this whole state. And frankly, we need it. We absolutely need that. And I think the people in Wasatch Front are ready for that growth to occur somewhere other than uh, in their own their own county. It's getting crowded in the let, Wasatch Front. Let me ask you, Greg, though, what do you mean by infrastructure? What does that mean? So great question. So you can't grow without water. So water is a tough one. Getting water infrastructure and making sure we have water shares uh, that by comp, a four state compact we're entitled to in the Colorado River. Uh, we have to get those water shares and get that water infrastructure because we're already growing. And so we need to be able the water is essential uh, to, to human beings. And so when you're growing, you need water. So we need to enhance our water infrastructure throughout the state, which is there, by the way. We have great water conservancy districts. You know, when they the first water when the first reservoir was built in 1902, someone could have easily said, hey, that's over engineered. That's too expensive. That doesn't match the population of the time. But those those reservoirs that were built in the early 1900s, mm -hmm. they were done with an eye to what Utah is. We are a growing state. We are a city on the hill. We so they were preparing. We have to have that same level of, of effort going on here. So water is a big one. Rail infrastructure. We have uniquely in the state of Utah, every rail line from every West Coast port, Seattle, Oak, uh, Portland, Oakland, Los Angeles, Long Beach, because of the Intercontinental Railroad, every one of those coastal ports has rail lines that come into the state of Utah somewhere. That is an incredible uh, advantage for our state in terms of um, exports, imports, manufacturing typically gravitates around places where they can get, if they want to export whatever they're making to markets, to be able to uh, manufacture where they're close to those types of rail lines. Uh, it, it makes, you know, makes their transportation costs more manageable. I, I've talked to county commissioners around the state. We were lucky enough to hold about four, a little over 45 well-attended town hall meetings state across the state in January and February in the first week of March. And I'm telling you, elected officials in the, in, the, in the communities, they know what their economy looks like and they know what they could do if given a chance uh, to, to thrive and not see their kids uh, leave them and leave their communities and go to the Wasatch Front. So there's a lot of great ideas out there, a lot of pent up desire to see their communities, see that economic opportunity. So roads, rail, water, fiber optics, you know, your, your power corridors, those are things that we need to make sure the other counties in this state have access to. It's already there, Amy. We just have to enhance it. That's the other good news. You've got a line, the main line out of Oakland that goes all the way to Iron County, Sears City, goes all the way there, built in, the, in World War II. Why? Because they needed iron. But that's a 30-mile spur that has just fallen into disrepair and hasn't been used in the last 15 years, but could be with economies and manufacturing. You could repair that line that's already there, uh, and you would have a direct line to the Oakland port, which is in a, in a global supply chain and where I think you're going to see the United States really focus on manufacturing and not want to get everything from overseas anymore. We'll want to make and, and have a stronger manufacturing sector, but then export out around the world. I think those are such uh, key economic opportunities that infrastructure connects the dots and allows those communities to do what they do best. When we come back, we will uh, uh, dabble a little bit into uh, education, and then we'll uh, kind of finish with uh, a few uh, rapid-fire questions and asking a little bit more about yourself, Greg. We're having a candid conversation with former House Speaker Greg Hughes, who's running for governor. You're listening to Voices of Reason.
Welcome back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. We're having a candidate conversation with former Utah House Speaker Greg Hughes, who's running for governor. And uh, Greg, I wanted to kind of ask you a little bit about, about uh, kind of education as we speak here. You know, uh, Amy always mentions that we're in a situation where a lot of kids are at home now. They've gone to online learning so that we could do this stay home, stay safe situation uh, due to uh, COVID. But when we come out of this, we have to uh, reestablish our uh, public education. How do we do that in a way that can help us, again, move forward? Well, it, this is my observation, you know, in tough times and when things happen unexpectedly, you got to look at where are the opportunities and what what good can come from uh, something that has changed all the rules like what we're doing right now. Let me I think one of the uh, unexpected uh, uh, positives from what we're experiencing right now is in our public education system. So all of our children, uh, as best as can be managed, uh, our public education system in Utah is asking parents uh, to help uh, keep our students on track with curriculum and tests. And so every parent has become a homeschooler overnight. And I think that uh, I said earlier when we started this, that I think empathy is a powerful uh, teacher or it informs uh, people in a way that will help you make better decisions. I think there's a lot of empathy going on right now for the challenges that educators face in in teaching. I think that with the with the online instruction and with parents trying to keep their their students uh, on on track, I think there's a lot of eyes being opened on in terms of the daunting task that can be, how hard our teachers are working. I think the other side of that as a two-way uh, street is that I think that uh, the, the teachers themselves, as, as they're getting feedback from parents because that communication now is so much stronger, uh, they're probably hearing at a higher level because the parents are involved at a higher level, some of their observations or questions. And so I, I would argue that when we come out of this, we're going to have, because we are a young state, we have more good news in Utah, we have a lot of kids. Bad news in Utah, we got a lot of kids. Okay, so it's a, we, we have a lot of, you know, a lot of students per taxpayer in terms of having a lot of uh, students to educate. When we come out of this, I think the relationship between parents, students, and our public schools and education in general will be uh, more robust. There'll be a lot more empathy. I think the lines of communication will even be stronger. So, I think that's been a positive. I, I really do. I think that that's been a, a good thing for the state of Utah, and we're going to get good results from that. Greg, what have you learned uh, as you've been uh, talking to delegates and, and campaigning? What have you learned about the issues people care about or sort of your own priorities? Has it changed you or given you some insight? It has. I'll, uh, it's, it was you know 16 years of uh, being in the state house of representatives and serving as the majority whip and in the last four years as speaker of the house. Uh, when you're a speaker, you're elected by the whole body. So you're not the, the speaker of the Republicans of the House. You're the speaker of the whole House. You're voted on the floor. So you represent the whole body and, and, and you really do grapple state issues at a deeper level. So I toured the state a lot more as speaker of the House. I dealt with issues that were statewide. But when you do that, you, you're really looking at data and you're looking at statistics. Having been a candidate, I announced in January, January 8th, and having that good fortune of being able to have about 40, a little over 45 well-attended, and that was a shock in January and February, well-attended town hall meetings. When people raise their hands and they share uh, how public policy impacts their lives and their families, you can't help but change as a candidate. You can't help but learn. And this is what I've learned. It goes back to what I described as the growth of the state. Uh, we have along the Wasatch Front, 80% of Utah's population lives in four counties. And it is the, the density uh, that's occurring and the, the traffic congestion and the scarcity of housing 
And uh, the, you know, with tailpipes, even though we're doing a lot with tier three fuel to reduce emissions, you can't help but the more cars you have with and tailpipes being such a contributor to bad air, it it, it impacts uh, the quality, the air quality as you as your population grows within such a a valley like that. I'm sensing from people all, all along the Wasatch Front that these growing pains are getting too painful. They're not looking to see us uh, get more crowded and more crowded. At the very, very same time, I'm hearing communities uh, that are seeing their children leave. Their school population is declining. Uh, the small businesses are, are going away. Uh, it, and so they're saying to me, how do we, how do we get it? How do we get a chance? How do we see, why do we see everything go up to the Wasatch Front? Why is every uh, job, go, Governor's Office of Economic Development, they, uh, they incentivize job growth and job creation. Well, if they're looking at job growth as their only measuring stick, they look at the highest populated areas. And so we're always out of the game when, the, when you see that uh, you know, the economic development or trying to uh, in, in incentivize corporate expansion or corporate growth. And they're right. They have been left out of it. And so what I've learned is my stump speech as a candidate doesn't change. I don't have a rural Utah stump speech and then a Wasatch Front stump speech or a Southern Utah stump speech. What I'm discussing with you right now is exactly verbatim what I'm describing across the state. And it and it tracks because the interests of all of Utahns right now, the 80% of our state that live along the Wasatch Front, their interests align now perfectly with those that live outside the Wasatch Front because the Wasatch Front needs a relief valve. They can't bear all the growth and all the jobs and all the and, and they can't do it all by themselves. And at the same time, those that are, live outside the Wasatch Front are thirsting for those same opportunities. So when you see those interests align so perfectly, and that's the, I only got there from the amount of meetings and town hall meetings we had where I could, as a former policymaker, kind of connect these dots. It's the play. I'm telling you the play is that we grow this economic pie throughout this whole state like it's never been done before. That is, and I, and I believe it, when you connect those dots and you explain it to people that live along the Wasatch Front, they love it. Instead of 300 units right next to their neighborhood, people can find an, an outside of the Wasatch Front job and a, and a home that isn't so expensive because the cost of living is lower. There's an excitement on all fronts when you start describing scenarios like that. We got about uh, just about two minutes. So I'm going to uh, just uh, leap to the last one. Why should people vote for you to be governor? I think that uh, what I would argue is that we're, the decisions in front of the state of Utah, the sky is the limit, but they're all going to be hard. All the really, really impactful, positive things that were really easy uh, have already been done. Uh, we are a growing state of over 3 million people. Uh, we have to see, we have to be able to manage that growth. We have to plan for growing this economic pie and the role that government has doing that, by the way. You're just, you want to just have the building blocks so the economy can do what it, it's wired to do. But these are going to be hard decisions and hard uh, – it's hard – anytime – this is just my experience. Anytime you rattle the status quo, you have to change from what you're doing. You have adults that control adult systems, and with that comes a lot of, a lot of pushback. And, a lot, and so you have to have someone that can push through that, that's willing to have hard conversations, sometimes even uncomfortable conversations, but also be someone that can bring people together and find common ground. I think I have a track record for that. It's just not what I'm saying as a candidate. If you look back at my uh, record of, as, of public service, I think you can see many examples of difficult issues being tackled uh, where we were able to find common ground. And I think that's what's required of the state. So I would say that I'm battle tested. I, uh, I don't buckle to the, the pressures that come with 
changing or rattling the status quo. And I do believe that I have that appetite for and that we can see uh, great things happen for the state. And I think uniquely in this race, I have the, those, those qualities. Well, listen, I want to say thank you very much. Uh, it's been great having you. Thank you, Amy and, and yeah. Jason. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I just want to say social distancing is like kryptonite to me. I didn't get to rant about this. You don't you have no idea. I know. I, I'm with you. Uh, I like <laughs> this might be the first time in my life I've had to be socially distanced. I'm not I did not sign up for an election where I was never allowed to be in front of a voter. Ever. Yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah. what in the world? So that's. I didn't get to rant, and I wanted to just get that off my chest. I, this is, well, we, this we is unbelievable. The, uh, well, you're preaching to the, to the choir. And hopefully you get to come back. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We're preaching to the choir. studio. Yes. In right, absolutely. Studio. absolutely. Yes, for yes. sure. Okay. okay. Thank you, Greg. Right. Join us again lot. for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at vormed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at VOR Podcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on all the places where you find and subscribe to uh, interesting content. You can be sure to review our show, and uh, we love to get your feedback. It helps us grow our audience as well. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of The Loudmouth Project.